Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia, and my co-host is here with me, Joe Consorti. Joe and I are really lucky to have Joe Carlosari here today with us at the Bitcoin Layer. Joe Carlosari is a longtime participant in the investment markets, but most notably, he is a partner at Amundsen Davis. They are a law firm in Chicago. He deals specifically in Bitcoin and uh, blockchain litigation as well. Joe, thank you so much for joining Joe and me oh, today. Absolutely, guys. Thanks so much for having me. This is going to be a ton of fun. Uh, and I consider it a privilege to chat with both of you. So uh, thank you for having me on. Of course. Joe, tell us what it's like to be involved in legal matters in this young industry of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Uh, it could not be more exciting. So I, I spent many years out of law school um, developing a practice, and it had nothing to do with Bitcoin, crypto, fintech. Um, but as time has gone by and I got increasingly uh, interested in it, uh, many folks were asking for lawyers, litigators in particular, that had experienced some transactional work as well, regulatory work, and said, hey, can you, can you help us here? I know that you're interested in this on a, on a personal basis. You know, Can you figure it out? And I'll just tell you, um, it is just a blessing that I get to get involved in this industry because it is the wild west. And when there's a wild west and there isn't a sheriff on the beat, um, litigators often, as you know, um, step in and they fill the void. Right. So I, I consider it really exciting to be able to uh, go into court and explain to old gray hair judges how public private key cryptography works and explain how, well, judge, just because you order those coins to move on the blockchain doesn't necessarily mean they're going to. Um, so it's, it, it's thrilling. And for me in my line of work, um, as much as it's exciting from an investment standpoint to be there in the bull market, it's almost more exciting legally in the bear market, right? Because that's when the tide goes out. You find when people are truly swimming naked and everybody starts filing litigation against one another. Um, so for me, you know, the last, I'd say, six to 12 months have been way busier than they were even at the height of the, the, the bull market. Tell us about, let's start with FTX. Uh, what is going on today in that bankruptcy proceeding and maybe any implications for the asset class in general? Well, again, in, in bankruptcy is a slow moving process, right? It takes a ton of time to sort out the claims and, and creditors. And um, I saw a report that uh, I think in the uh, lawyers and advisors had uh, billed uh, close to $50 million, uh, $50 million worth of hours uh, since the, the bankruptcy filing was made. Um, so, you know, nothing earth shattering is developing in the near term, right? It's still just a question of where are the assets at? What can we recover? Um, the bankruptcy trustees are going to try and figure out what kind of assets they can go after to make creditors whole. And as you all know, uh, one of the key aspects of bankruptcy, for those that aren't familiar, is an issue of priority, right? It's not just a question of, you know, all these uh, folks out there that are owed money, but when you have that line and you have limited assets, who gets to the front of the line, who goes to the back of the line? And unfortunately, as it stands, uh, it seems that many of the regular people that were using FTX, they're going to the back of the line. Uh, there's a lot of creditors that are going to go in front of them. Um, and from, from my perspective, I'm really interested to see what the final dollar number is on, on crypto assets. Obviously, we know they didn't have a, a huge amount of Bitcoin, if any. Um, that's not going to create a lot of selling pressure. But what other assets in the market are they going to be able to use to liquidate? And then what kind of selling pressure that's going to put on? For me, that's what I'm watching really closely with some of the reports that are being filed. So more on that to come, nothing imminent, but uh, definitely exciting. And um, a lot of folks that I think are uh, unfortunately uh, going to be uh, left without much in terms of recovery. And obviously when it comes to liquidation, um, 
we've already seen over the course of 2022, every single major bust that occurred, there were a tremendous amount of assets that were liquidated. And as such, Bitcoin itself sort of functioning as the primary, I'll say, asset in the system, um, collateral oftentimes for, for loans and things of that sort. Um, you know, the, yeah. it, it took the brunt of the damage. It got sold off in several different legs. Um, as of right now, do you view uh, uh, the assets that still have yet to be sold and, and could be sold as bankruptcy proceedings go on um, as being really material to further Bitcoin downside? No, not not necessarily. Uh, the one thing I will just to, to walk back for a second. Um, interestingly, I would sort of take a slightly different approach because I think in terms of liquidity and pressure, it's not necessarily Bitcoin. A lot of these entities, Three Arrows Capital, the major ones that went down, they were actually exposed to a lot of GBTC. The GBTC, and, and that's one of the reasons why we see this steep discount, that was their, their go-to for liquidity in a crunch. You know, obviously it's security regulated, um, traded publicly, that was easy to access. And, and that's why you saw that extreme discount to the NAV. Um, so for me, like I, I actually thought that I think the GBTC plays a huge role in all of this because GBTC was used to serve uh, as a basis for obtaining additional collateral. Uh, it was loaned out between some of these entities. So GBTC is a huge story of the crypto, a huge part of the uh, story of the crypto meltdown. Let's unpack GBTC uh where do you see this discount going, Joe? And I guess part of my question here is, do the friends and family that I have that own GPTC, should they be expecting par or should they be worried? And, and take us through maybe the next uh, six to 12 months as we will work through this process. Right. So let, let's start with the... Uh the obvious disclosure, right? I can't give you any individual investment advice on, on GBTC or what friends and family are, are looking at. But I know personally, I know a lot of friends and family that did have access to capital in certain accounts and it was an easy way to get exposure to Bitcoin. The um, frustrating part of that uh, with respect to how the sponsor governed itself was that it appeared that they were stocking up on quite a bit of Bitcoin purchases throughout the bull market. Okay. They didn't necessarily need to do that. We can go into reasons why that occurred. Uh, speculation I'm, I'm not going to offer, but it did happen, right? They were buying uh, up until including the heights. So the question is then, you know, when you're getting these shares and these shares are locked up for a period and then they're redeemable, they're getting sell pressure and that premiums being extracted. Um, from from my perspective, if you're trying to forecast this, I think it all goes back to where does the Bitcoin market go? Because I do think there are players that still will use GBTC as a, as a proxy for Bitcoin if you had a continued bull market um, in Bitcoin. The, the issue is because of the structure of the trust, you're not going to be able to liquidate those coins other than for fees. And that's going to consistently be a drag along with the 2% the fee. Where it goes from here. I think that my base case is that I, I, I estimate that the discount will narrow. I'm hoping we could get back into, you know, knock on wood, the, the high 20s to 30% range if you have a continued positive price action in Bitcoin itself. Mere uh, trajectory of the, the asset going higher is going to pull that discount closer to par. But, but I don't uh, particularly think in a short of a raging bull market where Bitcoin's over 100K, you're going to get that thing back to to nav anytime soon so absent of <clears throat> absent of the legal matters and the legal proceedings the market of bitcoin itself is going to have the maximum impact on the discount because just of animal spirits right what yes. i think joe is describing here is that if the bitcoin market gets going 
there will be natural buyers for GBTC, especially those that want to participate in a potential additional upside as the discount closes. Right. And, and I, I think, you know, if I had to guess, again, okay, this is pure speculation, so I'll just say it with that uh, caveat. Um, I think one of the reasons why the sponsor Grayscale was purchasing Bitcoin like it was uh, through most of 2020 and 2021 is that there seemed to be this notion across the Bitcoin space that Bitcoin was going much higher, that we were headed north of six figures, that that was going much further. So I think they didn't want to be caught in a situation where they were offsides uh, with, uh, you know, a lot of people say it was nefarious, that there was some um, conspiracy. That may be the case. I, I don't know. And, and I'm not going to comment on that. But uh, I think that they didn't want to be in a, in a situation similar to 2017 and other periods where it was actually trading at a significant premium, right? You, if you were buying GBTC shares just because of the way they structure the trust, it's not uh, trading in and out like an ETF structure. There was, I think at one point, Joe may, may know it offhand, what it was like 20% premium, 30% premium at the height yeah, of the bull market? Yeah, at, at its peak of the bull market, it was uh, like a 25, 26% premium. Right. So I think that they were trying to avoid that. And you can appreciate like how that, that does have like a forecasting element to it, right? How much Bitcoin do we need to buy at what point so that we keep the, the, um, the shares close to NAV? It's not as easy as you'd think. Um, that's one of the reasons why the ETF structure is much better. Uh, but from my standpoint here, I think that, that uh, you know, animal spirits probably is your best bet for closing that NAV in the near future. Legally, I don't, I don't really see it. Um, you know, you can make a lot of claims about, uh, you know, misappropriation, malfeasance, breach of fiduciary duty, all that. Uh, I don't really buy those. Just, and that's just my legal opinion, not particularized legal advice, you know, all that. Um, from from my standpoint where, you know, some of the, just to explain some of the, the fights are going here, um, you know, anybody can go forward and get the shares and replace the sponsor. It's in a public document, right? If you want to go forward and get sufficient uh, shareholders and they want to replace a sponsor, go for it. I will say, I think that sort of maneuver is pretty difficult. Um, and, and legally, it's going to take a lot of coordination that I'm you know, I'm skeptical of. So uh, just to answer your question directly, I think it all comes down to where does Bitcoin go from here? Where's the Bitcoin price action? If you know that, I think you can project at least uh, the future uh, NAV discount value. And before I let uh, Joe ask the next question here, um, I just want to remind our audience that because uh, Mr. Carlosari here is involved in the litigation process with all the bankruptcy proceedings going on and uh, one company suing another or one agency suing a company and vice versa, that there are certain elements to the story that he can't address directly, but that still, um, we still are lucky to have his legal opinion here because, uh, you know, we're not legal experts and we're trying to get a sense of the players and how Bitcoin is impacted, right? We're not a trading service. We always, we don't give individual investment advice either. You know, we're here to just guide people into understanding what's going on. Yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And I'll just state, nothing, none of what I'm saying is based on anything that is not public knowledge. Nothing's proprietary or attorney-client privilege. This is all stuff you could find just with Googling on the internet. So for, for what it's worth. Fantastic. So uh, you talked about, you know, in, in lieu of any legal proceedings, the where GBTC is headed is primarily going to be dependent on where Bitcoin is headed. Um, 
and here at the Bitcoin layer, we obviously cover Bitcoin quite extensively, but we cover it through a macro lens and uh, we cover macro almost as much, if not more than we do do Bitcoin. And Joe, you are someone that I deeply, deeply admire and respect for the sheer neuroplasticity it must take to have all of uh, all of this legal acumen in your brain at the same time uh, that you have all of this markets acumen. Um, and so I, I want to shift gears just marginally into uh, markets here, uh, if I will, for a moment, because you mentioned that uh, the price of GPTC direction will be a lot, very much dependent on Bitcoin. The first thing I want to talk about, and, and this is something all three of us have been uh, familiar with and covering in, in recent weeks and months, is the loosening of financial conditions. Obviously, Powell has been trumpeting uh, higher for longer, tighter for longer, right? We have a lot of work to do. He said the same phrase in you know a hundred different ways. Um, but over the last few months, we've seen a distinct loosening in financial conditions. We've seen uh, rates come off of their peaks. We've seen credit spreads narrowed to multi-year lows, even pre-COVID lows. Uh, we see in the equity market, we see VIX uh, is sorely underbought, right? The um, you know the the uh, the premium. Um, uh, basically, every single place that you look, financial conditions are very easy. Um, as of right now, do you feel that's warranted or not? Uh, moving forward, do you feel that the, the markets have it wrong or do you feel that uh, the markets have it exactly right with disinflation setting in uh, pretty precipitously um, and uh, potentially us normalizing here back down to two or two and a half percent CPI in the summer? Yeah. Um, so when you say the markets have it right, I think the markets have it right for now is how I'd answer it. Maybe not for the long term. Um I think it's interesting just to comment on uh, uh, back to the presser on the first that Powell had where he was asked this question about loosing financial conditions and he kind of uh, remarked, well, you know, financial conditions are essentially uh, the same level they were in uh, December at the last meeting and they haven't loosened. That, that's kind of strange to me. That seems odd with some of the data and the Fed's own metrics. I mean, the Chicago Fed, uh, their financial conditions index has showed considerable loosening of financial conditions, particularly since the summer last year. So it doesn't really seem to reflect it. I guess, you know, from from my standpoint, I think Powell uh, is probably more focused on this long lag effect in monetary policy and how, how much time it's going to take. And I feel like, uh, you know, the, the transition to 25 that they're doing now, um, you know, I, I would not be surprised if at all. Um, in fact, I think it's probably... Uh, my base case at this point that they keep the 25 bips going for uh, even longer than the spring and summer. I think they could hike at 25 bips for the rest of the year. And the reason for that is simply because of what you're saying. I mean, you're, you're really seeing, I would say at best, a muted effect on the real economy. And I think the labor report sort of confirms that. Um, now, that's not to say this stuff can't change on a turn on a dime. It absolutely can. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe that's their goal. Maybe they want to move it up at a slower pace continue to put the pressure on. I know that the market thinks we're getting cuts at the end of the year, but um, again, the market's been wrong on this in terms of projecting cuts for I some time I was just looking now. at terminal pricing through time yeah. on the chart. And back in the good old days, back at last May, it was at like two, two and a half percent. And then it just rocket shipped up stepwise. And who's to say that won't be the same exact uh, case for, for when cuts will occur. And, and, and there is a case to be made. Um, smart commentators have talked about it thoroughly. I'm sure both of you are aware as to whether, you know, this surge in inflation from coming out of the pandemic recovery, uh, that that's primarily supply and it's supply driven. 
as well as the demand side that has a lot of cash. I mean, the Goldman report is stunning. I never would have guessed that they came out with a, for your viewers, uh, you can Google it, a, a breakdown of the remaining stimulus and elevated checking account balances. Their estimates so, show it's about a third of the stimulus money uh, and excess savings that have been built up post pandemic in real terms has been drawn down a third. And they estimate by the end of the year, it's only gonna be uh, two thirds drawn down. So you still have a ton of, in real terms, inflation adjusted, extra savings on the sideline. So all of that is so, so as to say, you know, what is the real effect of these hikes? You know, uh, from, a, from a consumer standpoint, you're raising interest rates, you raise them, raise them to six, you know, 6% of the Fed funds. Is that going, it's going to freeze up markets, right? It's going to freeze up uh, certain financial assets and it's going to freeze up potentially high yield. But look at like real estate, okay? If you're a regular consumer and you have a locked in fixed uh, mortgage, like you have, many people have done for the last five, 10 years, you don't actually see that. That's not borne out in the price data in real time, right? Your costs are fixed. Now, if you're going to go out into the marketplace and you're going to buy a new house, that's a different story, right? So you have this friction where people are, are kind of locked in their houses, so to speak. You, know, they, uh, you, you don't get the volatility uh, um, from bid-ask with real estate, for example, unless you have people truly becoming unemployed. And as the labor market says, we're, you know, the number one reason that people said that they sell their house during a recession is because they lose their job, right? Not rocket science, pretty much self-intuitive. If you don't have labor taking uh, unemployment rising, how are you going to get that pressure in all those houses coming to market? You know, that, that's kind of the opposite of 2007, 2008. You saw people losing their job. You saw unemployment start to skyrocket and that pushed houses into the market, which pushed prices down. Um, I don't know if you see that, you know, it all goes back to labor. I'm really, I think this labor uh, issue is a real conundrum. Um, you know, what, what is the change in the labor market? Is it something structural that is going to take potentially years or is it really just, uh, you know, we got a little bit more of a runway than people expect? Joe, I really don't like NFP. It's such a noisy data set. Sure. Um, what do you? What else do you watch uh, on the employment side from the data side? It's 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 important to understand. And I bring this up because we've had tens of thousands of jobs, job cuts announced from huge companies all around the country for the last few months, but that's not showing up anywhere. So what th that's a conundrum for me. What are you looking at from the data side and labor and and where where is this showing up? Yeah. So so it's a great question and and as you know I'm sure from the noisiness that it, it's I think it's annual annualized annual every year in January they revise this make breakup of the uh of the NFP and it always seems to come out with this outlier for, for jobs. So, um, you know, that's what I kind of attribute that, that number. But even if you take out that, um, uh, change in the makeup that they do in January, I think it still was a $200,000 print, 200,000, uh, worker print. Do I have that right? Is that the, the breakdown somewhere to that effect? The season, the seasonal adjustment was, yeah. was so large it was um, huge. Beca because it was of 518,000. Yeah. So, and the seasonal adjustment, I think, was above the amount of the headline. So, I think that the net number was negative, but don't quote me on that. Right. So, to to answer the question, what I look at, I think, and and we don't have um, 
there, there's some private indicators that I look at on this that I think are better than some of the public data sets. I know JP Morgan has one, but you look at the hours worked, okay? Because from my perspective, I think that what employers, and I talked to clients about this, they're so afraid of losing talent that I think what they really want to do at this point is they'll, they'll scale back the hours worked. In fact, I was just talking with a client about this today. They scale back the hours worked first, okay? So data, before they actually let the folks go, because they, you know, forecasting is really tough. So if you, um, if you get it wrong, obviously you have to go then hire, and that's an extra cost for, for businesses. Um, if you let people go too quickly, it can be uh, more problematic than if you would have just kept them on or just reduced their hours. So hours worked full-time and part-time employees, some of the private data sets uh, that you can get access to through um, various uh, strategy firms, they'll, they'll give you the best read, I think. And you still see some softness there, but I would say nothing alarming. Uh, when I was looking at this a few weeks ago, it was, okay, there's a little bit of weakness. Uh, seasonally adjusted, though, it's nothing that, you know, you want to uh, say, say the sky is falling. So to me, that's one of the best indications. Hours worked. Uh, both on the part-time and full-time employees. Joe, one of the things that I really love about your analysis, and this is my bias here coming through, is your refusal to play along with the death of the Treasury, U.S. Treasury, <laughs> as a reserve asset in our financial system. Now, our audience knows that based off of my book, Layered Money, U.S. Treasuries do function as that first layer of dollars in our system, especially with the way that collateral works, especially with the way that maturity transformation and the repo market work. Tell us why you are so adamant about this particular dynamic in the market and what it means to you and your framework in investing. It's a great question. Um, so, and again, this comes, one of the things Joe alluded to is about, you know, I, I can be an armchair economist and market participant and read the same stuff. Uh, I do have sort of, I do have a background in, in economics just from university, but uh, it's not my day job, right? But, but what I do know just from talking to folks um, and clients, and particularly in the fintech space and the investment banking space, um, is that it's so critical to have safe and liquid collateral that you can use for a balance sheet purposes to create credit, uh, to offset obligations, and having that having a market in, in, a, in not just in the millions, but in the tens of billions, hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars deep liquid market like that for credit purposes is your lifeblood. It is your it is it is saved countries right during the inflationary pressures they were facing last year. Everybody was bemoaning the fact that. Uh, sovereigns were selling and liquidating their treasuries. That's exactly why you have that. That is exactly your insurance policy to protect your currency where necessary to have those treasuries there. I view that as a positive because that was protecting them against what they were going through last year. So I look at, you know, I, I always say, you know, where, where do dollars flow uh, when they're scared? Where does money go when it's scared? And it goes into the treasury market. Because they know if there's one thing that uh, they can count on when uh, the proverbial stuff hits the fan, it's that the U.S. government's going to be able to meet good on its obligations. That is not necessarily the case for, for businesses and for many other smaller sovereigns. And, and if you're a free market capitalist, 
and you're allocating your wealth, you're allocating your resources, both in the private side, public side, doesn't matter. Where, who, where are you going to put money? Where are you going to trust in a safe, liquid, deep market uh, in the world? And I look at all the other alternatives, obviously Bitcoin, and that's, I'm a huge Bitcoin bull, and obviously that goes without saying, um, but from, from practical purposes today, if you're an economic actor and you're trying to protect yourself, the protection is you can buy is your treasuries. It's fantastic. And speaking of treasuries, really quickly, and then I have a question uh, for you about, uh, about Bitcoin and Lightning. One of the things that we've written uh, about here uh, quite a few times is about what what will it take for Bitcoin to eventually emerge as uh, a reserve asset that people can hold uh, alongside uh, treasuries? And one of the big answers for that is uh, a lot more liquidity and obviously some more instrumentation, some more on-ramps. Um, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. But before uh, we do, um, speaking of rates right now, we talk about how uh, the economy is still relatively robust. You know, all, all of this fiscal stimulus, all of this monetary stimulus, um, you know, only one third of fiscal stimulus has been spent. Tremendous pile of excess savings. Given that the economy is so robust, um, we've seen we've seen a pretty big reversal in rates since October. We Nick wrote a piece, "Welcome Back Bond Bulls" in October. Um, what's your take on where rates are headed over the next six to twelve months if the economy does stay more robust than you know uh, a lot of people may be projecting? Well, if it stays robust, I, th I expect them to chop. I really do. I, I think that particularly at the long end, which is driven by growth expectations um, and that that safe haven trade we were talking about, if if uh, if you're going to see, and again, uh, uh, full disclosure, I thought you'd see weakening through most of 2021, like or 2022, excuse me. Um, I thought you would see rollover in unemployment. I thought you'd see a cascade and wave of of bankruptcies. I was wrong in that. Right. That was one of the reasons why I was more long. Um, duration uh, for most of the second half of 2022. Um, that was an okay trade, obviously, because of the bounce from October um, in, in the market, in the bond market at the long end. But uh, it is not deteriorated as rapidly. I still think that that speaks to the robustness of the economy. It can change really quickly, right? These are very fluid markets. And, uh, you know, you get one major actor or you get a credit squeeze or uh, some sort of credit event uh, that can that can can turn on a dime. So, you know, you have to monitor those things. But if you keep sort of this level of growth, I saw Atlanta Fed is now projecting, I think, 2.2% real GDP for Q1. Um, you keep in those sort of realms. Um, yeah, you should expect chop on rates, I think. Um, I still think that uh, if that that is the case and you don't see labor rollover, I don't expect any pivot or uh, any cutting from the Federal Reserve. I don't expect any of that. It doesn't doesn't seem to make sense. And that 100%. does vibe. It does vibe with what we are thinking about here, which is that three and a half percent does seem like a fair value range for tens, and the impetus to drive it to two and a half percent is not there. The mm -hmm. data in the economy doesn't support that. Um, now, with a slowing economy, or generally, um, like we see PMI surveys coming in below fifty across the world and in ISM manufacturing as well, it does support a view that contraction is, we are amidst that type of activity, but it hasn't dragged the whole economy down. That's why rates are where they are and not heading below 3%. It seems all of the excess growth. liquidity through 2020, 2021, and then the early stages of 2022, it, it certainly caught most market participants off guard. Like you were saying, Joe, you know, swift deterioration was sort of the expectation in 2022. 
and you know, for posterity's sake, it was my expectation as well. You you don't go through the most rapid tightening cycle from a balance sheet perspective and from a rates perspective in history and uh, get out unscathed. And it seems like you know, as much as I hate to say it, Powell has played this pretty well thus far in uh, recognizing the amount of excess liquidity in the system and hiking you know, at three times the pace that they generally do uh, in anticipation that the economy can take it. And thus far, the economy has been able to weather it. And I think your general notion of, look, 25 basis point hikes every single meeting, that can just be the expectation for a while until you begin to see labor turn and you begin to see some of these surveys uh, come in a little bit more negative. Um, I think that has a lot of merit to it. I think, you know, if anything, excess liquidity caught every everybody off guard last year. Yeah, which which is kind of... Um you know, shame on us, right? Because the data was there. Um, you know, JP Morgan checking data showed this. It, it, real incomes, uh, the median real income for 2022, even adjusted for inflation on real terms, was still elevated, more elevated than 2019, right? So so why, why did we all have this blind spot? And I think the reason is because, you know, we, we, we freak, and I, and I, if there's one thing I try to do as a lawyer, I try to think about things that other people aren't thinking about, you know, risks for my clients that they, other folks aren't thinking about. And I think that we had this preconception, uh, pre-pandemic mostly driven that, you know, the Fed can't hike, the Fed can't raise interest rates, the economy is too weak. Um, there's a lot of reasons why I think people had that preconceived notion. Um, and and it, it may end up being true, right? I'll, I'll say that, you know, the credit markets are clearly hedging for some event down the line that, that may be uh, coming, right? But but I do think that, to your point, Joe, that household balance sheets came out of the pandemic, uh, regardless of the v- virtue or merit of the policy. I'm not going to get into that, but, but the stimulus checks, but they came out of in, in fairly decent shape. Um, you saw a lot of pent up demand. And uh, I think that that's the type of environment where you can have uh, uh, sustained growth. And then, and the question is, you know, that I, I, I often think about is like, why did you get those two quarters of quote unquote contraction, the, the real contraction in, in Q1 and Q2. And the real key there is I think, well, you know, nominally they're very high, you know, Q1 and Q2 were extremely high and you just had these, uh, you know, uh, de minimis negative contractions on the real side for real GDP, which, you know, that's exactly what uh, the the uh, National Board of Economic Rela- uh, uh, Research says can happen. That's why they reject the two quarter definition of a recession. They basically say you could have these two quarters where you have surging in uh, inflation and uh, high growth from a nominal perspective, but because of how it's calculated with uh, inflation, it pulls it down. So I, I didn't necessarily think that's a um, th- that those two prints in Q1 and Q2 were the product of a recession or decline in economic activity. I think that confused a lot of people. I think it's more of just a, a function of the fact that inflation was running at, what, 40-year highs. Yeah, the deflator was slightly higher than the nominal print, which was, yes. I think, Joe, uh, you, you said it was strong. I think it was in the 6-ish percent range, and the deflator was around 7 for both of those quarters. And so that's why it just came out in a negative. But a 6% nominal growth of the economy is why they were able to say, no, this is not a recession. And we will be data-driven here. I think the the challenge here for all of us as market observers is that our gut tells us that higher rates should slow down the economy and also empirical data of cycle-driven just theory and approach to investment 
tells us that as well. And we're waiting for it to show up in the data, especially labor. And it's just, it's not getting there. Um, even though we see these headlines that, uh, you know, Microsoft is laying off, Disney is laying off and, you know, Amazon is laying off. It's, it's hard to, it's hard to mesh, uh, these different sides of the coin. You see that from the interest rate sensitive folks, but then you also see, obviously NFP is noisy, but then you see, you know, labor market is still extremely tight. You see that despite uh, basically every single headline, uh, being about layoffs, you see that that gets reabsorbed extremely quickly. Well, I, I know that he's uh, sort of a lightning rod in, uh, in, in Bitcoin circles, but I am a huge fan of Jeff Snyder and his work. I very much appreciate it. I know people uh, have polarized views about him, but one of the things I really think he's brought to the conversation, which is that we have to kind of disabuse ourselves of this Fed-centric viewpoint that the massive global credit markets across many sovereign nations that fuel our economic engine, that they are driven by a quarter or 50 basis point hike or cut from the Federal Reserve. I think that is totally wrong. And, and Jeff's analogy, I think, is far better that they are frequently coming in as the janitor to clean up the mess that has been created or is on its way or, you know, already in motion. Right. These are these are huge events. And uh, the, the notion that they can control everything and slow it down, speed it up with with their monetary policy at the front end, I think, is uh, is questionable. OK, we should we should challenge that assumption. Um, because I don't think I don't think it fairly captures what the global credit markets do, particularly in our system. And I, I know Nick, you've done work on that and looked at, you know, the, the role of collateral in the system and the euro dollar system, et cetera. Absolutely. And Snyder is a part of our framework here because uh, what Snyder has done is he was one of the early teachers for me in terms of understanding that the euro dollar system or otherwise said the offshore dollar system is one of, if not the main determinants of credit extension in this world. And because that is a dynamic that is still with us today, um, his framework is, it's foundational. And, you know, I teach, I teach the Euro dollar system and I teach offshore versus onshore because it's an important dynamic to understand. And we should continue to remind ourselves that, uh, like Jeff Snyder says, that the Fed is lagging, right? He calls it the cleanup crew, but they are lagging. Rates do lead the Fed. This is something that we cover as well. So Joe, tell us about, bring back Bitcoin now. Yeah. How, how long is it going to take or what type of metrics are we going to look at to see that, okay, Bitcoin is also this risk off asset. Everyone wants it to be, but I keep reminding people that, look, it behaves with a high correlation to stock. So it's just not there yet. What, what's the timeline? What does need to happen? Yeah, I, I actually, in, in, in this is what maybe one thing we can talk about briefly. I, I think the highest correlation in my research that I was, um, that I've looked at going back years now, um, has been, uh, volatility, um, volatility, and Bitcoin are extremely, uh, there's an inverse relationship, particularly like things like the VIX, right? If you go back and look at the historical, uh, on a realized basis, historical lowest periods of volatility, they tend to correlate extremely uh, on an inverse basis with, uh, with Bitcoin. Um, to the day, I think in 2017, to the day where he had the all time low at the, at the time print on the VIX, 
Bitcoin was hitting an all-time high, I think above 19.6 within a, a day or two uh, in December of 2017. So, you know, during highly volatile periods, Bitcoin sells off. There's a lot of structural reasons. It's mis misinterpretation, misunderstanding of the asset, but it is what it is, right? And as investors, we have to just accept that uh, that's where it's at. I think to the point Joe raised earlier, liquidity is obviously a huge, huge part of it, but also functionally, like how Bitcoin is used um, on, they're, they're related, right? Uh, if, if there was a very liquid, deep market on Bitcoin, if you had a ton of liquidity there, how it would be used as a balance sheet asset, I think would change. Um, because you need to be able to go in on a Sunday night because, you know, well, I, I'm not going to talk about particular clients, but there, there are folks that need to get access to liquidity, you know, billions of dollars of liquidity and very short turnarounds. Right. And if you had the ability to liquidate huge amounts of Bitcoin in small periods, like you can do with treasuries right now, if you can get credit with treasuries, that changes the role of the asset. But but, you know, we, we need we need uh, we need the market cap to grow. It's it's perfectly suited to have that role. It is it, it could not be a better uh, in, in many ways, because it's 24 seven, the marketplace, if we could truly get that in place, that would be huge. Um, but but there's also beyond just liquidity. I think one of the concerns I have and I run into this with clients all the time is that, you know, our central repositories and, uh, and places where you can actually exchange Bitcoin, they're still kind of in the early days. Um, you, you, I maintain this and people disagree with me, um, but uh, I still think we do not have a serious, serious institutional level trading desk for Bitcoin. I don't think it exists. I know that firms and people push back and say, well, you know, Morgan Stanley's got a desk. You know, uh, there, there are a few other uh, firms on the street that have, have a desk. Look at the volume, right? Genesis dwarfed all of that. Why were all the trades being funneled through Genesis? Why were they, why were they not pushed to the bigger Wall Street firms? I remember back in 2016, 2017, you know, you heard Wall Street firms were going to have real desks for Bitcoin. They've never materialized. And to the extent they have materialized, the liquidity isn't there still. So why is that? Um, one of it's regulatory, obviously, that's, a, that's an issue. And I'm at the forefront of sort of dealing with some of those issues. But beyond that, uh, I think that you just need to have a changing of the guard, a changing of the mindset. You need to have some of the early people more comfortable with Bitcoin. They need to take senior management roles at uh, some of the bigger banks and, uh, and, and trading desks. And they need to be able to say, we're going to green light this and we're going to make this safe. But the fact that I had major clients putting on massive positions and trades and they had to use Genesis because that's where you had deep liquidity should tell you what stage we're at with this market. Tell, talk to us about Genesis then, you know, obviously Genesis uh, collapsed toward the end of last year under the pressure of sequential bankruptcies, counterparty risk throughout the system. So you had Genesis being utilized because the street wasn't coming or they, it wasn't developing in the way that they needed. The market players weren't willing to make that adjustment when they already had maybe lines open with companies like Genesis. So talk about Genesis. What happened there? Uh, what went wrong? Um, well, what went wrong? I think it, you could, we could talk an hour about that. What went wrong? Um, at, at its core, I think that they were... Um, free spirited with some of the deals that some of the trades they put on. Um, and I think that there was caught, actually, I know there was cross pollination between 
um, uh, their trading desks and some of the other aspects of their business. Uh, you know, there was a, as is the case, similar, similar to other companies, you know, they don't have the, uh, the walls that should be in place between, you know, the investment side and other aspects of their business. Uh, that's really key. That's critical. And I think that from the standpoint of this industry as a whole, and this is, this is an industry as a whole problem, you have only a handful of players and the counterparty risk is off the charts because it's so interconnected, right? The more closely tied and connected, I mean, look at, for example, just, and this is public knowledge, and, and I don't mean to, um, well, DCG, okay, DCG is involved in so many different aspects of this industry as sort of a, a tentacle into in everything, where if one of the dominoes falls, it puts pressure on all the other ones. And, and that's problematic, right? You don't, you don't want to have um, a, a system to use the, in the TradFi world. You don't want to have a banking system where all the deals are just one player going back and forth with one another, right? You want to spread out, diversify the risk. You want to make sure there's sufficient liquidity there to, to um, absorb a shock. So I would say that uh, with Genesis, the, the issue I think is that there was too many um, uh, there were too many trades that were put on um, that were not properly assessed. That is that is a real concern from Genesis's standpoint. Now moving forward, I do not expect that to be the case. I think we do get some real bigger players that come into this, but one of the things that I think is holding back the bigger players from coming in is because you've got this um, uh, exposure from the altcoin world. Because so many players have altcoin, uh, they speculate with the altcoins. It's it's like a barnacle on the ship that's Bitcoin, as they say. Um, there are folks that are saying we can't touch any significant sources of liquidity or exposure here because they all have altcoin exposure. And we see this just naturally with the Bitcoin price movements and, and crypto price movements in general. When Bitcoin pumps, it carries everything up. Even the worst of the worst, the, the, the worthless projects that we all know are unregistered securities and um uh, you know, scams outright, uh, they will ride the back of Bitcoin because that's where the liquidity is being pushed into. And then people will pull off Bitcoin to prop up these other things. So the question for, for bigger players trying to get in is how do I get exposure and create a real desk here for this marketplace without having exposure to the rest of the junk? And I don't think you can right now. The way the market's constructed where the majority of the liquidity is outside of the United States, that's a, it's just a problem for folks. And I will say it all goes back to even why the SEC is denying the ETF. The, the SEC has repeatedly said in all of its orders that they're denying the ETF because they think these offshore leveraged derivative exchanges are black boxes. There's no surveillance sharing agreements. We can't see what's in those things. We don't really understand, uh, you know, is the trading legitimate? Is there spoofing? Is there, you know, uh, order books that are just, you know, junk? Um, and you got to understand that, that, that that's real. Okay. It's not just some conspiracy that, you know, these regulators are anti-Bitcoin. Maybe there's some of that, but I really see it's more of a question of like, do we believe there is real integrity in this market given all of this other junk besides Bitcoin? And then it becomes a question of, you know, how long does it take to, to get to a reality where, uh, Bitcoin can distance itself from these other assets. And I think at the end of the day, it boils down to time, down to education and liquidity. What is this asset? How can it be used? Um, you know, what are the what are the analogies that are great about Bitcoin? How can we explain it simply? And what are the analogies that that simply are untrue? Um, and I think, you know, through time, through uh, exponentially more liquidity than there is now, um, 
you know, and through probably several more market cycles, I think um, that there will be that delineation between Bitcoin and then crypto more broadly. Here at the Bitcoin layer, we do crypto in air quotes. Yeah, quick. So, I mean, here's the thing. What I, what I think if you're, if you're a market participant in Bitcoin, the, the real challenge, and again, uh, for, for, for me thinking about though this is, do you believe in this new paradigm of structurally higher inflation? I think that is really key for trying to see where Bitcoin goes for the next five to 10 years. I don't, okay? Uh, now, I could be wrong, full disclosure. Uh, I, I, I really think, you know, everybody hates the word transitory, but I do think the supply and demand imbalance coming out of the pandemic is a transitory effect. The Fed never said how long transitory could be. Transitory could be four or five years, right, of dealing with the hangover from all that stimulus on the fiscal side and all the uh, disruption in the economy and changes in the labor force. Um, that being said, if you get back into a world where you have maybe not as low inflation structurally as we had for the last 10 years, but you get it relatively reasonable, you know, 3% inflation. Um, if you're in that world and you have anemic growth because of the poor debt and poor demographics, I think Bitcoin's going to perform extraordinarily well. Because what I think happens in that situation is you still have more and more of the fiscal spending that is going to be needed to, you know, uh, for bread and circuses for the population. Um, it becomes harder if the inflation actually sticks around and is real for the remainder of the decade. Um, if it's elevated, those things are become much more difficult. So um, I, I think that the f folks that say, you know, Bitcoin is a hedge for CPI, uh, you know, being off the charts, I think that's totally wrong completely uh, disagree with that notion. And empirically, that's what we see from 2022, that that's not the case. A high P CPI brings about restrictive monetary conditions and higher interest rates um, come with a sensitivity. Bitcoin definitely feels that sensitivity and sells off. So uh, structurally low inflation and a return back to previous ranges of inflation is actually the most bullish outcome for Bitcoin because it would keep fiscal spending going, which is part of the impetus for people to buy Bitcoin in itself as they see the government misallocating money. Absolutely right. Joe Carlosari, thank you so much for coming on with us today at the Bitcoin layer, sharing your expertise. We'd love to have you back on. Tell people where they can find you online and what else you're working on. Absolutely. I'm at Joe Carlosari uh, on Twitter. Um, I don't post a lot of legal stuff because of my clients and I want to be sensitive to that, but I post mostly just macro musings. Um, but if you need a, a legal, if you have a legal dispute, a commercial dispute, regulatory issue, um, you can Google my name. My firm will pop up. I'm happy to help. Like I said, I'm, I'm transitioning to the vast majority of my practice is moving to the crypto Bitcoin world. I do uh, it, uh, work in the crypto side, but um, somewhat. Uh, but I, uh, I try to focus as much as possible on Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin companies advising Bitcoin miners that represent a ton of Bitcoin miners, which is extremely exciting to me, um, all aspects of that industry. So if you're looking for legal advice and crypto expertise and Bitcoin expertise, I'm, I'm happy to assist. Uh, and then in terms of what we're working on, uh, I will tell you that uh, the amount of litigation that is coming uh, in the next six months is going to be nothing short of uh, stunning. Uh, both from uh, regulators. Um, I think you're going to see a ton of just uh, civil litigation that is filed uh, after 
uh, everything that has transpired with the bust of crypto in the last year. So um, I'm really eager for folks to hear about some of the things that are coming and, and the cases that are going to be filed. Uh, one thing you should note is that uh, if there are serious litigation and enforcement actions against quote unquote crypto, um, in my view, while it may cause some short term agita and pain in the Bitcoin market price, it is the first step in trying to drive home that differentiation that Joe is talking about. We need this, right? There, we have to be honest as, as Bitcoiners that there is a tremendous amount of scams and fraud and bad actors in this space. So we need folks to come in and step, uh, step on the bad actors so that a real world-changing technology like Bitcoin can emerge and differentiate. So just my view on it. Indeed, there's still a tremendous amount of uh, of dead growth on top of the on top of the grass that's waiting to grow in the forest, you know. And yes. uh, only after only after the big forest fire can can uh, can that grass grow. Absolutely. And we champion your efforts, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us here today at the Bitcoin Layer. Joe Colasari, he is partner at Amundsen Davis, a law firm in Chicago. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, guys. 